In 1988, this 13th century prayer book, penned by a Christian monk, sold for $2 million to anonymous bidder at auction. Now, I have no doubt that the prayers in this book were something quite beautiful, but they were by no means the reason why this battered collection of parchment sold for such a steep price. Now, it wasn't the prayers that the bidders and the historians and the scholars and the mathematicians were interested in. Rather, the erased text written beneath the words of the prayers in this book that intrigued them. This was no ordinary book, but a palimpsest. Palimpsests are documents that contain two layers of text. They're generally ancient texts from which the original writing has been removed, erased from the text using milk or sometimes oat bran so that the parchment, which was expensive and difficult to come by, could be used again. So once the parchment was washed clean by this method, then it would be dried and it would be used again, and fresh writing would replace where the old writing once was. However, it came to be known after the course of many years that the removal of the writing through this method turned out to be somewhat temporary. And over the course of many years, the original writing began to reappear. So it was discovered that this 13th century prayer book contained writings that dated back to the second century BC and contained the only copy of one of the most important works of Archimedes, the Greek thinker who was widely regarded as the greatest mathematician of antiquity. So here you can see a page from this prayer book, now known as the Archimedes Palimpsest. The text of the prayer book can be seen running from the top to the bottom of the page, and then more faintly beneath that, you can see the original work of Archimedes running from left to right. So it's difficult to see with the human eye, but with the use of special tools and lights, the original writing becomes much more clear. So on your left, you see a page from the prayer book, but then on the right, you see that exact same page when viewed using multispectral imaging, and it brings the text beneath the text to light. I've been neck deep in the study of the Old Testament for several years now, and this seemed to me to be a good way to understand the Bible itself. As a palimpsest, as a book that contains within it multiple layers of writing, and although it's not immediately clear to the human eye, with the right tools and a willingness to look deep, there's a word that begins to emerge beneath the plain text of Scripture. It's a word that was written across the pages of Scripture long before any other story or history or account or letter was ever written. That word is Christ. Jesus Christ is the word written beneath the story of Scripture. And he is there in the Old Testament just as surely, although not as clearly, as in the New. So this is a good reminder for us as we set out again in our study of the book of Numbers. It is very good for us to remember that Jesus Christ is the backdrop against all of these stories that we are reading about. And it is a very good for thing for us to get into the habit of asking the Spirit of God to reveal his presence beneath each of these stories. 
Last week, we uh, read chapter 20 of Numbers, which is one of the more tragic chapters in the book of Numbers, and that is actually saying a lot. Moses, one of the most faithful examples provided to us in the scriptures, lost his brother, he lost his sister, and he lost entry into the land of promise. Yet against all of that darkness and gloom, we saw the word of Christ lifting to the surface of the text. Christ, the spiritual rock of our salvation, who was struck once so that through him streams of living water could continuously flow. As we continue into Numbers chapter 21 this week, we are going to get yet another opportunity to see the word of Christ seep through the pages of this Old Testament narrative. So let's get started. Numbers 21, verse 1. When the Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming on the Athram road, he fought against Israel and captured some prisoners. Then Israel made a vow to the Lord, if you will hand this people over to us, we will completely destroy their cities. The Lord listened to Israel's request and handed the Canaanites over to them, and Israel completely destroyed them and their cities. So they named the place Hormah. So we've seen a few indications over these last several weeks of scripture that the years of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness is coming to a close. And this opening scene from chapter 21 is yet another sure sign that their wanderings are over. The Lord has begun moving his people with great purpose back toward the land of promise. Now we want to remember that the Lord has always been quite clear with the Israelites that there would be battles along the way. The Israelites were under no illusion that they would simply waltz into the land of Canaan without any opposition. After all, the promised land was not some vast, empty land, but it was a fully inhabited one. So the Lord had promised that he would give his people the land, but they were to be active participants in the fulfillment of that promise. This brief account at the beginning of chapter 21 shows that this new generation of Israelites has fully embraced this call. And when they do, the Lord grants them their first major victory over the Canaanites. Now, because this event is given such a brief mention in the text of Scripture, it would be very easy for us to gloss over it without pausing to consider the significance event. But this would have been a major turning point in the history of the Israelites. It would have marked the dawning of a completely new era. And the location of that victory, Hormah, would have emphasized this. So back in Numbers 14, God had led his people right up to the border of the land of promise, but completely overcome by their fear of the inhabitants of the land, the people had refused to go in. So God sent a judgment upon his people for this act of rebellion. He said, okay, you don't want to go into the land of my promise, then you will wander the wilderness around it for the rest of your lives. Now, quite understandably, the Israelites were greatly distressed when they heard this pronounced judgment of God, and they decided to go into the land anyway, to, in a misguided attempt, to try to set things right with the Lord and hopefully just kind of skip past his judgment. 
Now Moses and the Lord both warned them against this, but they foolishly carried on anyway, and the result was disastrous. They were defeated, and they were pushed back out of Canaan and into the wilderness to a place called Hormah. Hormah was the place where their wilderness wanderings began. So now, almost 40 years later, the Israelites returned to this same place, but this time in obedience to the Lord. And instead of being tragically defeated, they triumphed for the first time. It was a pledge from the Lord that the conquest of Canaan was soon to begin and that their many long years of wandering in the wilderness were over. In our Western mindset, we somehow have this idea that progression always necessarily involves some sort of forward movement. Right? We don't want to go back. We don't want to have to go around. And we certainly don't want to have to cover ground that we have already been over. But sometimes we are simply not capable of gaining ground that we haven't already lost. At Horma, the Israelites had experienced one of their most devastating defeats, and at Horma, they experienced one of their most monumental victories. In his patience with us and in his faithfulness to us, sometimes the Lord will simply loop us back around. Right? We saw this last week in chapter 20 at the place of Kadesh, and we see it again this week at the place of Horma in chapter 21. As I considered the significance of those places of Kadesh and Horma over this last week of study, it served as such a needed reminder to me that the Lord was with his people during those years in the wilderness. Those years of wandering around in the wilderness were not a time of abandonment by the Lord, whether they were a time of very close proximity to the Lord. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is delivering his farewell address to the Israelite people. He knows that he is going to die very soon and that when he does, they are going to cross over into the land of promise without him. And he says to them, remember that the Lord your God led you on the entire journey during these 40 years in the wilderness. That just struck me with such immediate and great force within the last couple of days. The Lord is with you. No matter how you have sinned, no matter the way in which you have rebelled, no matter how far away from him you have strayed, now he may well sentence you to many years of wandering around in the wilderness, but you do not walk it alone. He is with you. And he has a purpose for you during those times in the wilderness, and it is to eventually simply loop you back around. So follow him closely. Verse 4, then they set out from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to bypass the land of Edom, but the people became impatient because of the journey. 
So if you remember from last week in chapter 20, the Israelites requested permission from the Edomites to pass through their land. Going through the land of Edom would have been a much more direct route to the land of Canaan than having to walk all the way around it. But remember, the Edomites refused. So when we see here in verse four that the Israelites are bypassing the land of Edom, they are walking in obedience to the Lord. Now, when we looked at the parallel account of that event in the book of Deuteronomy last week, we learned that it was the Lord who told them to do this. The Lord told them, do not provoke Edom. Now, God could have told them to go ahead and fight Edom. God could have told them to march straight through Edom and to completely ignore the Edomites, but he didn't. He told them to go around. So the Israelites act in obedience to that, and then we see that the Lord blesses them for this obedience, right? They just won their first major victory over the Canaanites. But then... The journey around Edom starts to feel a little long. I can imagine that they started to think about how much quicker it would have been if they just could have gone straight through Edom instead of having to march all the way around it. And as their excitement over that first major journey, that major victory begins to fade, their doubts begin to creep in. They grow impatient with the journey, and then they begin to do the things that we all begin to do when we feel like the journey is just taking a little too long. Verse 5, the people spoke against God and Moses, why have you led us up from Egypt to die in this wilderness? There is no bread or water, and we detest this wretched food. So I know that there's a tendency uh, as a reader of this text to grow very calloused against these repeat offenders. But we can't read and rightly understand this Old Testament narrative without first considering the New Testament commentary that is given to us on it. So the Apostle Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians makes mention of all of these grumblings that we hear from the Israelites in this part of Numbers. And this is what he writes. He tells us that these things happen to them as examples. And they're written for our instruction so that any among us who thinks we stand will be careful not to fall. If there's a mistake that the Israelites made again and again and again in the wilderness, we can be pretty confident that that's a mistake that we are prone to make again and again and again as well. So we would be very wise here to pay close attention. Because listen to me, ladies, there are certain mistakes that you only make once. Those are the mistakes that cost enough the first time around that you're not in any great danger of ever repeating them again. But then there are other mistakes that seem almost understandable at first as you are learning and as you are growing in the Lord. But if you keep making those same mistakes over and over and over again, refusing to learn what the Lord is trying to teach you, then it's likely that those mistakes can end up costing you even more than those big mistakes that you've made. But what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians is that if we are intentional in learning from the example given to us here in Scripture, then it doesn't have to be that way. We have an opportunity to learn from their mistakes. 
So let's do it. Let's learn from the example that God has provided us in Scripture. So I want us to look at two things. I want to first look at what exactly this repeated mistake was, and then I want to look at how we can go about avoiding making it ourselves. So what we've seen over the course of the Israelites' journey throughout the books of Exodus and Numbers is that any time they ran into any type of hardship, any type of difficulty, their knee-jerk reaction was to doubt the Lord. And, and really specifically, they were prone to doubting the Lord in regards to what his intentions toward them were. That was just one of the besetting sins of the Israelites. It was one of the sins that they repeated over and over and over again. Difficulty of almost any kind almost always directly catapulted them straight into doubt. In Exodus 16, the Israelites are on their journey and they get hungry and they begin doubting the Lord and they make accusations against him. And so in response, the Lord miraculously rains down this bread from heaven for them. In Exodus 17, they come to a place where there is no water and they get thirsty and they doubt the Lord and they begin making accusations against him. And in response, he supernaturally pours forth water from a rock. And then in Numbers 20, they once again come to a place where there is no water and they grow thirsty and they doubt the Lord and they make accusations against him. And he responds once again by supernaturally providing them with water from a rock. So by the time we get to this episode in chapter 21, we have seen repeatedly many times over the propensity of the Israelites to come up against difficulty and to doubt the Lord instead of trust him. So in every episode prior to this one, the Lord had responded to the Israelites' doubt through the further revelation of who he was and what his intentions toward them were. That his intentions toward them were only good, that he intended fully to bless them and to keep them and to protect them and to provide for them. But eventually, them giving in to that exact same temptation to doubt was something that the Lord no longer found understandable, but he viewed as an intentional testing of him. That's what the Apostle Paul said that they did when he referenced this very event in 1 Corinthians. He said that they tested the Lord, and at that point, it is met with consequences. So that very same text out of 1 Corinthians goes on to say that no temptation has come upon us except that which is common to humanity. So every single one of us sitting in this room tonight can take that to mean that their temptations are our temptations. If they were repeatedly tempted to doubt the Lord, if they were repeatedly tempted to allow difficulty to drive them into a place of doubt that led them to making demands of the Lord in order that he might prove his faithfulness to them, then we can rest pretty well assured that we are going to be repeatedly 
tempted to do the exact same thing. It is a tried and true tactic of the enemy that he even used on Jesus Christ himself during his temptation in the wilderness. So knowing this, what do we do with that? Knowing that we are gonna repeatedly be brought to this very same place throughout our own journey. And here's what I want us to see. It's that as we progressively journey on with the Lord, we are eventually to come to a place where instead of doubting the faithfulness of the Lord, we decide that we are going to instead count on the faithfulness of the Lord. So let's rewind a little bit with the Israelites and see how this might have played out just a little bit differently. So in Exodus chapter 16, the Israelites come to a place of need and of want and of lack, and and they doubt the Lord. They begin making accusations against him, and in response, the Lord miraculously like rains down this bread from heaven for them. In Exodus 17, once again, the Israelites find themselves in a place of lack and of want and of need, and they feel that same temptation to doubt the Lord, but then they think back to what the Lord had done last time. And they start to talk to one another, and they say, you know, you remember that thing that the Lord did last time. I don't know, do you think maybe he could do something like that again? And the Lord supernaturally pours forth this water from a rock to provide for his people. Then in Numbers chapter 20, here they are again, and the Israelites come to the same familiar place of need and of lack and of want. And again, they are tempted with that very same thought to doubt the Lord. But at this point, they have these other instances to look back on. So instead of doubting the faithfulness of the Lord, they decide that they are just going to count on it. And they look around at the dry and the barren land all around them, and they say, God... We just can't wait to see what you do for us this time. As we journey on further and further in our walk with the Lord, we are to come, women, to a place where we decide to count on the faithfulness of God. Instead of giving in to that very strong temptation to doubt him. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 13 to say, but God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you will be able to bear it. So I hope that as I'm reading that, all of you can recognize how huge that is. Right, God is telling us in the word of scripture that he has provided us with a way out of every single temptation that we are ever gonna face. God has provided for us a way out of our temptation to doubt. So what is it? I assume many of you are familiar with the story of Doubting Thomas in the New Testament Gospel of John. 
Thomas was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, and after Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection, Jesus had begun appearing again in bodily form to some of his disciples. But then let's cut over to the story of Thomas in John chapter 20. Thomas, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, the disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Jesus' gentle rebuke of his disciple there reveals to us the way out of our temptation to doubt. And it is simply to believe. The balm of faith is God's cure for the disease of our doubt. And as we continue on even further in this chapter 21 of Numbers, we're going to see that even more clearly. So let's keep going. 21.6. Then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and they bit them so that many Israelites died. The people then came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord so that he will take the snakes away from us. And Moses interceded for the people. So there were so many things about this section of scripture that I just found absolutely fascinating. And the first had to do with the snakes. Now, I don't know about you, but I initially thought that that was a really odd judgment for God to place upon his people, and I wondered what the significance of those snakes might be. There is evidence that suggests that those snakes had actually been there all along, but that up until that point, the Lord had simply been shielding his people from them. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses describes the land through which he and the Israelites journeyed, and he describes it as a great and terrible wilderness with its poisonous snakes and scorpions, a thirsty land where there was no water. In the early 1900s, thousands of years after the Israelites had made their journey through this land, Lawrence of Arabia journeyed through that exact same land as he fought alongside Arab forces in World War I, and he reported snakes in such large numbers that his men feared to even walk at night. Now, nowhere else in Exodus or Numbers, as we've been journeying with the Israelites, have we seen any mention of these snakes. And given the propensity of the Israelites to make their complaints known, I have some confidence that if the snakes had been a bother, we probably would have heard about it. But not a mention of them. In their doubt, the Israelites were so focused in on what they believed that the Lord was not 
doing, that he lost all ability to perceive that which he was. Our doubt blinds us to the mercies and the miracles of God, which are continuous. Now, the second thing that I want you to note here is how we see the mercy of God even in the act of sending the snakes. So when you take a really close look at this text, you see that the judgment was the thing that revealed to them their sin. Andrew Murray writes that true knowledge and confession of sin are the sure path of deliverance. The snakes were the things that opened their eyes to their sin. And once their eyes were opened to their sin, then the people were moved to come to Moses to confess their sin, to repent of their sin. And at that point, upon their confession and upon Moses' intercession, the Lord is there with a ready remedy. Verse 8, Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake image and mount it on a pole. When anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will recover. So Moses made a bronze snake and mounted it on a pole. Whenever someone who was bitten looked at the bronze snake, he recovered. So again here, this is just completely fascinating. First, I want you to look back at the request that the Israelites made of Moses in verse 7. They wanted God to take the snakes away. They wanted God to remove the thing, the source of the bite. They wanted him to remove the source of their pain and their discomfort, but that is not at all what the Lord saw fit to do. What he did see fit to do was provide them with a means of healing from it. You see, the snakes were there to serve a very specific purpose. Removing the snakes, removing the bites, would have been to remove the thing that revealed to the Israelites their sin. And once their sin was revealed and their eyes were open to their sin, God told them exactly what they needed to do to be healed from it. And what did he tell them to do? Look at the bronze snake. Look at the bronze snake. So the Lord instructed Moses to mount an image of a snake high atop a pole so that it could be seen all throughout the camp. And those who were bitten merely had to look at the image of the snake. And in doing so, they would be healed of the disease that the bite had brought. In verses 8 and 9, you see the word look there two times. And in the original language, those verses contain two different words for look. And that is in order to stress the fact that the Israelites had to do more than simply catch a glimpse of the snake, right? In the original language, those words mean that they needed to consider. They needed to fix their gaze upon. They needed to look intently at. They needed to behold this snake. So all of those words indicate a definite act 
of the will. It required that the bitten one actually trust God for the cure, even though there seemed to be no legitimate reason why looking at the image of this snake would heal them from the snake's bite. So we see that looking at the snake required an act of faith. And only through an act of faith would the Israelites be cured from the disease of their doubt. In John chapter 3, Jesus compares the healing received by all those who looked at this snake lifted high on a pole to the salvation that would be received by all of those who looked at him in faith lifted high on the cross. So although it seems a very strange story to us, once we remember the word written beneath the pages of scripture, it all starts to make sense. And our eyes are open to the fact that there are so many similarities between the snake bit Israelites and ourselves. Like the Israelites, we too have been bit by the serpent and felt the sting of our sin. Just as with the Israelites, God provided them an unlikely antidote for the snake's bites, and so also has he provided for us a most unconventional cure. Just as the Israelites were required only to look at the snake in order to live, so we too are only required to look to the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation. Both methods of cure are altogether miraculous. And for both us and the Israelites, the bite of the serpent proves fatal to all who dismiss the cure. But for all who believe, the Lord gives the gift of life. Life for a look. As we turn our attention to the last portion of chapter 21, we see that the Israelites finally begin making very quick progress toward the land of promise. So I just want to draw your attention to two things that we see at play in this last part of chapter 21. And those two things are God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. We see them both at play, and they are both very important. As I stressed earlier in this lesson, God had promised that he was going to give his people the land, but they were to be active participants in the fulfillment of that promise. God's sovereignty and the people's responsibility. So in verses 10 through 13, we see that the Lord is leading, but the people are actually following. In verses 14 through 20, we see that God is providing the water, but that the people are digging the well and they are praising the provider. And then as we move into verses 21 through 35, we're going to see that the Lord is protecting and his people are fighting. In those last 14 verses of chapter 21, we read about two important victories that God grants 
the Israelites. And in both instances, we see that Israel strikes the enemy down and takes possession of their land. So that action is repeated many times over in this section of scripture. So history doesn't look too kindly on the action of one people group striking down another and taking possession of their land. So what are we to make of this? This section requires that we need to keep a little bit of perspective. Not long ago, I had to break up a fight between my oldest two boys. It seems that my oldest son was mortally offended when my middle son went into his closet and took a shirt of his to wear. You see, my older son had grown out of this shirt, and so the middle boy saw no reason why he couldn't go in and begin wearing it. So I happened upon this conversation at the exact moment where my oldest son said, because it's mine, that's why. And here, you understand, I absolutely had to interject. So I very kindly told both of my sons that the shirt was not either of theirs. The shirt was mine. I had paid for it. It was mine. I can do with it exactly what I wanted. I could give it to or take it from whichever one I wanted because the shirt was mine. And Psalm 24.1 reminds us that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it and all of those who dwell within. God can do what he pleases with that which is his. And here in this text, the Lord tells Israel, I have handed him over to you along with his whole army and the land. In light of the recent events in Ukraine, I wanna make sure that we are all very clear on something. When we're considering Israel here and their conquest of Canaan, we have to understand that Israel was a singular nation with a singular purpose in all of human history. So we do not base our current foreign policy on, nor do we judge the appropriate undertaking of war on the Lord's instructions to Israel here. And that is made abundantly clear in the New Testament when Jesus refers to his own disciples not as a nation made up of territories and land and borders, but as a new people who God would draw forth from every people and every nation and every tribe and every tongue. So here, in this account, in the book of Numbers, in Israel's conquest of Canaan, the Lord has made clear that the land is his and he was giving it to Israel so they were to take it. God had promised that he was going to give his people the land, but they were to be active participants in the fulfillment of that promise. And we too are to be active participants in the fulfillment of the promises that the Lord has made us. Through Jesus Christ, the word written beneath the story of scripture, God has promised all of us who have looked to his son in faith that we have been accepted, that we have been chosen, that we have been redeemed that we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit and that we have been given an inheritance. We do not doubt 
the faithfulness of God, but we count on the faithfulness of God and fully confident of the surety of these promises, we make every effort to take a hold of these things because we know that we have been taken hold of by Jesus Christ.